Hey, good evening, guys. Let's be seated. Welcome, if you're with us online. Let's all open our Bibles tonight to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. <clears throat> the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And uh, we're going to pick up our study in verse 15 here this evening. Now, uh, earlier in chapter 6, we saw Jesus feed more than 5,000 people miraculously. And it was uh, evident a miracle had been performed and they didn't end there. Jesus and the disciples would make their way back across the Sea of Galilee, surrounded by further miracles and teaching. And as we look at this, we're going to get some insight on the storms that we face in life and also uh, challenge ourselves as to why we choose uh, to follow Jesus, making sure that it's for the right reasons. And we'll see Jesus walking on the sea and then revealing uh, to some people who are interested in him, um, but not necessarily following for the right reasons, how he is the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 15 says this, Therefore, when Jesus perceived... <clears throat> that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So again, Jesus goes to the uh, eastern side, northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee there, and all of these people, he goes by boat, they all follow on land, and it's late in the day, and they're hungry, and Jesus feeds all of them, and they're all very interested in him, as, I, as we'll see some many for the wrong reasons, um, but they're ready to just kind of uh, decide that he, he's going to be their king, and um, regardless of God's timing, regardless of God's plan, and just by force uh, make him their king. But Jesus, always aware of the Father's timing and what needed to be completed, understood that before there was a throne, there was going to be a cross. And so Jesus will withdraw uh, from them to, to a mountain alone to pray. He'll send them away. He'll send the disciples away. And it says, verse 16, <clears throat> When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. So, as I said, Jesus, they wanted to make him king. He he sends the people away, uh, as we see in, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Those are uh, the two parallel passages, Matthew 14, um, Mark chapter 6. And he sends the, the, the people away, the multitudes away, and he tells the disciples to get into a boat, uh, to get into their boat, and to head back over to the other side uh, to Capernaum. And so that's how Jesus is by himself. The multitudes are gone. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee uh, in a boat. And we're told that the sea arose, verse 18, <clears throat> because a great wind was blowing. So this storm, one of these famous storms, comes up on the Sea of Galilee there. And the disciples are right in the midst uh, of that storm. And it's interesting because, <clears throat> excuse me guys, <clears throat> I got something there and I can't quite clear it out and it's driving me absolutely insane. Um, 
Jesus tells them to go out into the midst of the sea, and they wind up right in the middle of this storm. The Sea of Galilee, we've talked about this before, is notorious for these kinds of storms. It's a, you know, it's, it's a big lake. It's, it's fresh water, and it's surrounded by mountains, and it has some canyons that, that make their way through these mountains. And, and if the wind is coming from the right direction, it can just funnel and intensify right onto the lake and, and create some uh, frightening storms. And that's what happens to the disciples here. Only Jesus sent them into this storm. That's, that's the interesting thing. And, and a lot of people will say this. Don't stop me if you've heard this one. But um, they'll say, well, you know, if, if God is directing you, then, you know, why is this happening in your life? And the implication is, is had, were you listening to God, everything would be going well. Well, that's such bad doctrine. Where, where do we even begin? Because a lot of times as God is directing you in life, he's going to take you right into a storm. He took Daniel into storms. He took the disciples into storms. He took many other people in scripture right into the middle of a storm. Sometimes there is testing for us in the storm. Always there is growth for us in the storm. There is an opportunity uh, for our faith especially to grow. There is a, an opportunity in the storm for God to, to work and to be glorified and to demonstrate his power. So he will often take us uh, into storms in life. And that's an important thing to remember, that just because you're in the middle of the storm doesn't mean that you heard wrong and doesn't mean that you're not exactly where the Lord wants you to be. <clears throat> The disciples at this time were exactly where Jesus told them to go. And so it says in verse 19, So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Now, depending on where they left from, I've told you before that at its widest point, and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee basically from roughly from east to west. And at its widest point, um, the Sea of Galilee is eight miles across. So depending on where they were crossing at, they're probably half to two-thirds of the way to their destination on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And they're struggling because the storm is building, and they're struggling to row across the Sea of Galilee there. And along comes Jesus. And we're told in Matthew 14 and John 6, Matthew 14, 26 and John 6, 49, that they thought that he was a ghost. So they, they thought that, that uh, uh, Jesus w- was a ghost. Um, you know, ghosts are popular these days. Uh, I've noticed uh, on television, there's all sorts of shows about ghosts and the, the supernatural. In fact, I tried to watch something on the Travel Channel the other day, and they should just rename that the Ghost Channel. Because every show on there had something to do with ghosts and the paranormal and all this other stuff. I just wanted to like go find a travel show and watch some kind of travel show, but I couldn't find one uh, on the Travel Channel. Uh, but all kinds of ghost shows. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of funny to me that even back then, you know, that ghosts you know they had this fascination with uh 
with ghosts and, and, and things of that nature. Well, first of all, there's no such thing as ghosts. Uh, you, should, you should know that. The Bible teaches us that uh, very clearly, that, uh, that people, when they die, uh, they're not allowed to just wander around here. Uh, they don't, they don't, and there is uh, one rare instance in the Bible where God allows the prophet Samuel to, um, after he has died, to interact with King Saul. That's it. Uh, the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. In Luke chapter 16, we see uh, the rich man who's dead. He's in Hades, in torments in Hades. And he can't leave. He would like to go back and to uh, warn his living siblings, but he cannot. So there's, the dead do not have that kind of freedom. So when people are encountering things, uh, if they are encountering things, um, they are encountering the spiritual realm. They're encountering uh, demons, perhaps, uh, and fallen angels, uh, but they are not encountering their departed uh, loved ones. They're being deceived uh, at best, and or in one way or another. And, and so the disciples are misinformed, as people throughout history have been. Uh, they think that Jesus is a ghost, and Jesus reassures them. He, he, he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So um, it's not apparent, but... In the Greek, Jesus uh, says, uh, ego e me, which means, uh, I always think of lego my ego, uh, but uh, whenever I think of that, ego e me, it means I am. It's the name of God. It's the, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Old Testament name of God. So he says, I am, do not be afraid. So not only is he revealing you know, hey guys, it's me, but, but it's God. It's, it, it's me, God. And it's interesting, by the way, I think a lot of people think that God's name is God. <laughs> if you were to go out and ask uh, 99 people uh, out of 100, what is God's name? I think that they would look at you a bit strange. God, you know, of course. God is, but that's not his name. That's who he is. He's God, but God actually has a name. Turn over to Exodus chapter 3. You probably have read this passage once or twice or more. Um, But it's really interesting how we become aware of the name of God. It's because of Moses. Moses did a lot, did quite a few favors, uh, in case you haven't noticed in Scripture. And this is arguably one of the greatest ones. We we might not even know the name of God, I suppose, had Moses not bothered to ask. And in Exodus chapter 3, that's what's called the, Jesus called it, the burning bush passage. And it's where, you know it, it's where Moses is, he's out in the, the desert of Midian. Midian was probably in the northern part of Saudi Arabia. And so he's way out in the desert of Midian, he's tending the flocks of his father-in-law, and God appears to him in a bush that is on fire, but it's not consumed. And God speaks to him from that bush, and he, he tells him, you know, remove your sandals because you're on holy ground. 
and he is going to send him back to Egypt to lead his people to the land of promise. And Moses says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses had such great insight. And he said, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, she says this to God, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So when I tell the people that God has sent me, and they say, you know, which God, what is his name? What do I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. So he uses the uh, Hebrew verb of being. I am. Hayah, is, it, it, it's the, the Hebrew verb. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So there in verse 14, he, as I said, uses the verb to be, a, a, a verb of being, I am, meaning I am. And then in verse 15, it's usually rendered, it's rendered in my New King James and uh, probably, depending on your translation, I'm, I'm pretty sure all translation, English translations, um, when he gives them his name, uh, Yahweh, uh, it's the proper noun derived from that verb. And in your Bible, it's probably capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So, uh, that, anytime you see that uh, in, um, in the Scripture, used in the Old Testament there, it is typically, I can't think of an instance where it's not, the proper name of God. That's how it's rendered in the English translation. So, he says, I am who I am, he uses a verb, and then he gives the proper noun, which is his name, which means the existing one. It's the natural uh, derivative, the noun, from that verb, I am, uh, that verb to be. And so it's very interesting if you think about, well, what, what is God's name? <laughs> and God doesn't say, well, my name is, you know, uh, Theodore, or my name is, is William. Uh, or, he says, my name is I am. I am the existing one. What a perfect name of God. And we see this name of God used throughout. When Jesus is being uh, betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says to, to the uh, people coming to arrest him, he says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, in your, in your New Testament translation, it says, I am he. But in the Greek, it says, I am. And then what happened? It says that they all fell over backward. They all fell to the ground at the power of the, the name of God. 
So when we understand what's happening, it helps us better understand sometimes these passages, and especially when we understand the name of God and the power in the name of God. And so as Jesus comes along to the disciples here in John chapter 6, verse 20, he says, I am. Don't be afraid. I'm God. God is here with you. I am here with you. And it says, verse 21 Then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So we know from those other accounts that I mentioned to you in Matthew and in Mark there, we know that it was um, the fourth watch of the night. So Jesus comes, it's the fourth watch of the night. That's just before dawn. And or that's the watch that comes before sunrise. And so they had been struggling all night. And, and as soon as Jesus entered the situation, they arrived at their destination. They've been struggling all night, no more than, you know, half uh, way across to two-thirds of the way across, struggling all night. And then all of a sudden, Jesus enters their situation and they've arrived at their destination miraculously what changed it says here that they willingly received him into the boat so what changed their situation was receiving jesus into their boat and the question is is have you received jesus into your boat i'm not asking if you know about jesus i'm not asking if you you know, uh, if you've heard of him, if you've studied the scripture, I'm asking you if you've received Jesus into your boat in two senses. First of all, is he your savior? And second of all, have you invited him into your situation? Because in Mark chapter six, verse 48, it says that Jesus would have passed them by. So had they not invited Jesus into the boat, he would have kept going. He's not gonna... Just say, all right, scoot over. I'm in. He doesn't work that way. He doesn't force you to involuntarily have him in your situation. You, that has to be something that you want. He's happy to do it. In fact, that's why he's here. But you have to invite him. And it says that you have to receive him. It says that they received him into the boat. They asked him to to join them. Seems like such a simple thing, but I can tell you this, that that a lot of people either, one, don't think to do it, or two, don't want to do it. They don't want Jesus uh, in their boat because they want to row how they want, where they want. And even though it's harder, and even though it might be dangerous, and even though it's worse, they would rather struggle than have Jesus in their boat. And so, you know, he's not going to, like I say, he's not going to force them, but a wise person realizes, why would I do that? that? That's foolish. The disciples realized that. And so they invited Jesus into the boat. There suddenly at land, verse 22, says this, on the following day, so that happens, you know, overnight, following day, 
when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So all of that is to say that Jesus gets back to Capernaum, and when they discovered the next day that Jesus uh, and the disciples are there, they're confused. Because you see, the day before, when Jesus sent them away, and he sent the disciples away in the boat, you know, they realized all of that. And they realized that Jesus didn't get in any of the other boats that came from Tiberias, which was on the southwest part of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus didn't get in, as I said, in the boat with the disciples. And uh, so they're, they're just kind of confused. They had boarded these other boats and come back to Capernaum, or conceivably uh, some of them had walked. And, and so uh, all that had taken place on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is now back on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're, they're how did you get here? You know, they're, they're, they're trying to figure things out. <laughs> Jesus had walked on the water and, and you know, but, but Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you see, I can do this thing. And he you know, I, could, I walked on the sea. He doesn't get into all of that with them. He says this in verse 26. You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So he focuses in on why they're, you know, why are they asking these questions? Where, wh- what was the basis for all of their curiosity Uh, about him he doesn't focus in on how he got there he gets to the heart of why they were looking for him they didn't look for him because of who he was they looked for him because of what he did for them and so many people are interested in jesus not because of who he is but because of what he can do for them and that's what jesus said You're interested because you ate and you were filled. I filled your stomach. That's why you're interested. Not because you saw the signs. So they weren't interested because they saw something spiritually and it had done something in them spiritually and they wanted to follow Jesus. They were just interested because Jesus could do something for them. That's an indictment. And you know, there's a lot of people like that today. They're interested in, in Jesus. They might be interested in things about the Bible or church or, you know, they, they have certain questions. But when you begin to, to break some of those down, you realize that it's not so much about who Jesus is, but what he might be able to do for them. How life might be better for them if they had a relationship with him, or at least were religious, followed Jesus for, um, for the benefits. 
Jesus says in verse 27, and in case you think that this is harsh or that Jesus is being harsh with them, watch what happens. Verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So we don't follow Jesus for what he can give us, Though I would say this, that he certainly takes very good care of us, but we follow because of who he is and the life that he gives, Jesus says. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? (laughs) So Jesus exposed their fleshly motivations, and so they try to be spiritual, Jesus says, you're just following because of what I can do for you. What good works can we do? What, how can we be more religious? It's an interesting question. They ask what they can do. You know, man wants to know what he can do to be spiritual. It's very common. I would say that that most religious people, their concern is, what can I do? That's the substance, I think, of, uh, um, of a lot of people's relationship or lack of relationship with God. What good things can I do to do the works of God? And so they ask what they can do. What can I do to be spiritual? Jesus answers verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So the answer is that it's not about what you do. In fact, there's nothing really that you can do. But in whom you believe. And so really, we're, it comes back to faith. And we're saved by faith. And so, in a sense, if you want to say that the only work that you can do is to believe, if you, you, know, if you want to call faith a work, it's incorrect, biblically speaking. But, but if, you know, if that's what you mean, then, then, then all right. But uh, as Paul makes very clear that you know, faith is faith and works are works. And if you add works to faith, it's not faith. And if you add faith to works, it's no longer works. So th- these things are mutually exclusive. And belief is, is not a work. Um, belief is faith. Belief is, it, it, it is in your heart trusting in God. And then God does all of the work. Ephesians chapter 2 makes this distinction very clear for us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So there's there's an order of things here. You have been saved by God's grace. In other words, uh, God has showered upon you this, this undeserved favor. And nothing to do with you, all of God. And the way that you appropriate God's grace in in, in your life is you receive it. And you receive it by faith. 
simply by believing and trusting in God. There's, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good works to then, you know, possess, take possession of it. You just have to believe. And Paul says, and that not of yourselves. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Here's another interesting reason why faith is not a work. Because it's not of you. It's a gift. It's the gift of God. So faith, for those who have faith, you and I who have faith, faith is then a gift that has been given to us by God. We have this this capacity to believe and to trust in Him. And it's a gift that we have received from God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so what we discover is is that we're saved by believing and it has nothing to do with us. It is all about God. And so if you're here tonight, you've received God's grace by faith. You believe, you're saved, you're walking with God. You have absolutely nothing in yourself to be proud of that that's true that that's a reality. In fact, when I think about it, I think, man, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that God in his sovereignty chose me, that God gave me the gift of faith because if it was up to me, I wouldn't have it. But just because God is so good, he chose, he chose me. He chose to give that to me. And yes, practically, I have free will and I chose to follow him. But that doesn't diminish what the scripture says about faith and what it says about the sovereignty of God and what it says about me that I had absolutely nothing to do with this. That it was all of God. There was no work, there was no religious thing that I did to earn it or to be able to take possession of this. In verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Are you kidding me? He just fed them all the day before with five loaves and two fish. This is the same bunch of people. And they have the nerve and the, I, 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 can't, I can't even figure these people out. Jesus is so patient. I I don't know how he didn't just smack them. You know, that's because he's God and he's so good. But if any of us, we would have been like, I'm out. You know, like, see you people later. You're crazy. You know, what sign? What do you mean what sign? What sign will you do? What work will you do? They want another sign. This is how you know. They're just, they're just looking. What other good thing, what other thing are you going to do? He had already done enough for them to believe, even before he fed them. They said this, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is, a, as you look at this, you've got to kind of unpack this a little bit to see, you know, uh, it's worse than it seems. In Psalm 78, verse 24, uh, we, re- we read just that, that, that he gave them 
uh, bread from heaven to eat. And it, uh, so the question is, is, when they quote this verse, what is their point? Their point is, is that he's not as great as Moses. Because Moses fed them every day for 40 years in the wilderness, and Jesus had only multiplied existing food once. That's what they're saying. You, you fed us one time. Moses fed us for 40 years in the wilderness. But notice what Jesus says, verse 32. Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So first of all, in that passage, they were wrong. Moses didn't feed them. The passage didn't say that. It was saying that God fed them with bread from heaven, not Moses. And the Father fed them. And in fact, that was a type of him. That was a picture of him. The true bread come down from heaven. He says, verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Like, you know, everything going over their heads. Give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So if they would only turn to him, they would never hunger or thirst again spiritually. The problem is, is that so many try to feed spiritual needs with the flesh and are never satisfied, including many religious people like these people. Try to feed the, the spiritual man with the things of the flesh. Verse 36, he says, but I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So again, there, you've seen this in the scriptures, that there's different kinds of belief. There is the, yeah, we believe that Jesus, you know, can do some supernatural things, and we believe that he can do some good things for us, but we don't necessarily believe that he is the Son of God come down from heaven, the bread of life. Verse 37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So there are those who have been given to him by the Father and those who have not. And at least at this point, there were some who who had not, had not placed their faith and trust in him. And those who are given to him by the Father will come to him and he will gladly receive them. That's what Jesus is saying. So the question really that we have to ask is, which are we? You know, as you look at this passage, uh, am I in that group of people that the Father has given to Jesus who come to Jesus and who he receives and who he will by no means cast out. Am I, am I in that group? Some people think, well, you know, uh, you know, do I belong to him? Have I been given to him? You know, how do I know? Well, as I said earlier, we have the sovereignty of God and, and we have the grace of God and we have faith, which is a gift from God. And, and all of that sounds like it's, you know, God choosing and either you have it or you don't and then well 
what can I do? Well, the good news is, is that practically, as you stand on this earth, if you look at that and you say, well, I want to follow Jesus. I want to believe in him. I want to be one of his. Then all you have to do is choose. Because the Bible also makes that abundantly clear. In Romans chapter 10, let's take a look over there. Verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. This is what is beautiful about the Bible is is that yes, God chooses. But yes, you have a choice. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. It says in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So as you look at that, there is the encouragement to choose Jesus Christ. And there is the assurance that if you do, you will, not be, you will be saved. You will not be put to shame. And so, you know, for those who say, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to receive God's grace. I want the gift uh, of faith. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to I believe in Him. Then do it. That's all there is to it. Decide. Today, decide. And, and then do it and follow Him. That's the beauty. Uh, that's the truth of the gospel. And so, verse 38, John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. He won't lose a single believer. Some ask the question, can you lose your salvation? Nope. Not if you're truly a believer. Oh, sure, I know there's some people that, you know, they look like wheat, but they're tares, Scripture says. And early on, you can't really tell. They may not even know the difference. They may have deceived even their own heart. But, you know, as things develop, time has a way of revealing so many things. And a true believer is firmly in the grasp of Jesus. Jesus says, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. He's not going to lose any. So those that have truly come to Jesus and placed their faith and trust in him, they are secure And he has given us everlasting life. And he will raise us up as he raised himself up. Jesus is the the first born from the dead, the scripture says. The first one resurrected. And we will follow in his footsteps because he has risen. He will raise us up as well. 
What a great promise. And so, two very clear truths in this passage. So many things, so many things are happening here, but two, two very clear truths, challenges. I would say this. First, make sure Jesus is in your boat. Make sure Jesus is in your boat. That, uh, as, as simple as we can possibly put it, Make sure that Jesus is in your boat. And make sure that Jesus is not simply your source for bread, but that he is your bread. There's a a fundamental difference there. Make sure that you're saved, that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you've invited him into every situation, and that you don't just follow him for what he can do, but for who he is. And if we can do these two things, if these two things are true in our lives, then they not only guarantee eternal life, but they transform this life for us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word here tonight. The challenges of your word, Lord. We need to be challenged, Lord, in this world. There's just uh, many bad ideas, even bad religious ideas. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Who you are, what it means to follow you and walk with you. What holiness is about, what faithfulness is about. And let us not be following you because of what you can do for us, but because of who you are. (coughs) And as we follow you, let us be wise to include you in every situation in our lives. As our heads are bowed, as we're praying tonight, If Jesus isn't in your boat, if he isn't at the center of your life, please change that. Change that tonight. If you haven't been given to him yet, well then give yourself to him tonight. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Make him your Lord and Savior. Follow him. Serve him with everything. And receive that washing of his blood that takes away your sins and gives you eternal life. If you haven't done that, I invite you tonight to know that You have the salvation of God to know that you're going to spend an eternity with Him, not apart from Him in hell, paying for those sins. I'd like to pray with anybody here tonight. If you haven't, I invite you right now to raise your hand this evening. Join me in prayer if you haven't received Christ as your Savior. But take this opportunity now. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And if it hasn't yet come to you, then receive it tonight.
Thank you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for who you are. The great I am. The existing one. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.